Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4, as Zach suggested, verse 7. Everyone desires unity, right? If you're in a relationship, you desire that relationship to be unified. If you're husband and wife, especially, you want to live out the, the biblical injunction to be one. If you have a home, you want your family to be unified. If you go to work tomorrow morning in, a, in an office, in a workplace, in a warehouse, you want there to be unity in the workplace. We want there to be unity in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Wouldn't it be great if we had unity in Albuquerque, New Mexico? Before this day is over, by 6 o'clock this evening, two more teams will hit advance through the NFL playoffs, and uh, players of those teams will give credence to the fact that they were the most unified team on the field that day. And the Bible speaks to the fact that as followers of Jesus, we have unity. Everybody desires unity, but very few people define it. It stays out there kind of an abstract concept. So this morning through this text, I want us to define unity. And what you're going to find out is that unity has a lot to do with what's going on in the youth room right as soon as we're done this morning in the ministry fair. And you're going to see a connection between ministry that all of us participate in and the unity we can attain to. So Ephesians chapter 4, quick context. Paul writes this book. Paul is a man that was used by Jesus, sent by Jesus to expand the church uh, throughout the world. He also was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write much of scripture. So he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. It's a letter to the church about the church. In the first three chapters, we have really broad, exciting concepts of what the church is to be. Then in chapter 4, we get really practical. We get into the day-to-day applications. In verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, we talk about unity with broad, sweeping strokes. It's something that Jesus has achieved for us. It's something we should be experiencing. We pick up in verse 7. Verse 7, first word, but. Let's stop there. Okay, that's important. Uh, It's so easy to look past simple words in the Bible, but here's what's going on. Paul is making a contrast. He's been giving a sweeping concept of unity. Now he's going to make it very practical, very applicational, and now he's going to speak to us as individuals. So keep that in mind. But, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying, verse 9, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. It's an interesting bridge. First of all, it's a, difficult, uh, it's a difficult usage by Paul of Psalm 68. So much there. I invite you to ask Pastor Ron what that all means afterwards. There's, there's a lot there that we could go into, but I want us to see the big picture first. As Paul makes a connection between the unity that we have in Jesus, not just in theory, but in practice, connects it to ministry that all of us have a part to play in this unity, he starts out with Jesus. Isn't that cool? We have a picture of Jesus, Jesus as a conquering king. In that ancient world, as conquering kings came into a city, they would distribute uh, spoils of their conquest. And so we have this image of Jesus being in heaven, coming to earth, descending to the lower part of the earth, which is the earth, giving gifts, 
Now, those aren't going to be the spiritual gifts that we see in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. I'll explain that in just a minute. But giving gifts so that he might be above all, so that he might be preeminent. I want us to start there with the context and foundation of ministry. Ministry is a gift from Jesus so that we might enjoy Jesus and that he might be preeminent. If you don't understand that, then ministry will always be about what you have to do instead of what you get to do. It will always be about what you ought to do instead of what you want to do. Let me see if I can make this a little bit more clear. This is our practice every Christmas. We get towards uh, November, Thanksgiving. We look at the budget. It's always a little discouraging, a family budget. And we figure out how much money we have to spend on Christmas gifts. I have four daughters at home, actually one that's on her way to college. She goes to college out of country at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. So, so pray for her as she's on her way. Uh, she's studying abroad. She's studying internationally, I guess you could say, in the great nation of Texas. And um, three more at home. So we, we divvy up the, the, the money, uh, an allotment of the money for each of the kids equally. And then Kara and I usually give each other gifts. Kara's my wife. And her gifts are usually items that she's already picked out from some of the boutiques down on Central Avenue. That's where Mars Albuquerque is. We have friends. She goes in. She finds a pair of shoes. She finds a blouse, a skirt, whatever she wants. She purchases it. She comes home. She puts it in a box. She wraps it. And then she opens it a week later and acts surprise. Okay, that's <laughs> typical procedure. I, on the other hand, will look for a book. I'll look for some gadget in technology, something outdoorsy, and do the same for myself. But this Christmas, we got together and said, let's, let's give a gift to the family. What can we get? And we thought we would get the family a week for, for, for two reasons. One is, one I didn't disclose, but the reason I did disclose is so that we could enjoy each other as a family. That we could play games together. We could have a good time together. It would be a lot of fun, and in so doing, we would build the unity of our family. Secondly, privately, this was for my glory, so that I could show the kids how superior I am in the realm of technology. Uh, that part hasn't played out so well so far. Sorry, <laughs> my shoulders sore this morning from playing tennis. I'm terrible at everything, and, and nothing is worse than my wife, who's half my size and half my weight, destroying me in wee boxing. She, uh, she takes some kind of perverse pleasure in that. There's probably a lot of pent-up anger there. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. That's for private counseling. So the idea was giving a gift for the family that would result in us being together, enjoying each other, and ultimately and privately making me look good. Now, that's exactly what Jesus has done in the realm of ministry. As he builds unity in the church, he gives gifts. We're going to see what those gifts are. Just a minute. He gives gifts to men so that he might be preeminent, so that he might be and fill all things. If you don't start there, Ministry will never make sense. You'll never understand why it is that we would have a ministry fair in the youth room. It's about Jesus. It's about your enjoyment of Jesus together as a spiritual family, and it's about his glory, about his preeminence. Now let's see the nature of the gifts he gives. Look, if you will, at verse 11. Let's pick up there. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors... And teachers, those are his gifts. We're not talking about spiritual gifts. We're talking about spiritually gifted men that are functioning in certain roles that Jesus gives to the church. Now, I think there's a sequential order to these. 
if you were to go back a couple chapters and look at the end of chapter 2, you would see that combined the apostles and the prophets form the foundation of the church with Jesus being the cornerstone. What does that mean? It means they are, through the sovereign will of Jesus and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are the authors of the New Testament. So Jesus gives them so that the church will understand who he is. Then the evangelist comes, and the evangelist comes and speaks to people who've never heard of Jesus, proclaims Jesus. People come to know Jesus. Jesus provides those people who come to know him with pastors and teachers that they might grow in Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever understood what that means 2,000 years, remembered from this text? This means practically the men whom Jesus has given to Desert Springs Church as elders are Jesus' gift to you. you appreciate that? Imagine this scenario, totally hypothetical. Suppose one of you has a falling out with Pastor Ryan. So you meet with him privately and you try to work things out and things aren't working out and you're both frustrated because you want to reconcile And Pastor Ryan says to you, why don't you go see my friend, Pastor Dave, just to get another perspective on this. And so you come to my office, which typically is one of the satellites there on Central. We sit down over a cup of coffee. Tell me the problem. And you say, I have a problem with Pastor Ryan. I say, okay, what's your problem with Pastor Ryan? And you say to me, well, I think he thinks that he's God's gift to the church. I would say to you, well, biblically, that's correct. That's exactly who he is. Don't blame the gift, blame the giver, okay? But that's who Pastor Ryan is. God gives men to the church who exposit, who explain, who encourage through the content of the Word of God for the benefit of the church. That's God's gift of grace to you. Now, what is it they do exactly? Look at the next phrase, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry... For building up the body of Christ. That's profound. That's incredibly profound and that's terribly counter-cultural to the way that we typically see church in America. God gives the apostles and the prophets that form the scripture, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip. That's an interesting word. That's the word that's used medically to reset a broken bone. The concept being that when we come to know Jesus, our lives are broken. And as Jesus works in us and through us through the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of his words, our lives gradually become whole. They progressively become restored. Now that's not the end product. So that the saints may do what? The work of ministry. Do you realize this morning you're a saint? You ever thought about that? you turn to your neighbor real quick and introduce yourself as, hi, I'm St. Dave or St. something. Do it real quick for me. Just do it for me. I've always wanted to be St. Paul or St. Peter, but I'm St. Dave. To be a saint means to be set apart. It's all the people of Jesus. Now, now that you've acknowledged and accepted that fact through your own words that you're a saint, guess what else you are? You're a minister. That's your role in this church. You are collectively and individually the ministers of Desert Springs Church. Have you realized that? If ministry happens at Desert Springs Church, it's because you're being equipped to do ministry and you, as dear 
saints, loved by Jesus, set apart by Jesus, are doing the work so that the body is built up. If ministry isn't happening, it's because you're not doing it. You're the ministers. I learned something new about myself over Christmas. My oldest daughter, who is now having young men express interest in her, told me about a young man she met recently, said he was a person who loved Jesus, uh, like the Dallas Cowboys, that's two for me. That's good, you know. <laughs> Thirdly, if he likes the outdoors, he's got a pretty good shot, but we're working on that one. She said about him, he's very laid back. And I said, my whole family present, I said, that's cool, he's kind of like your, your, your dad. And all sets of eyes rolled at the same time. <laughs> there, were, there were sarcastic laughter, much like that. In other words... <laughs> said, Dad, you're a nice guy, but you are not laid back. You're intense. I've never been self-aware, okay? That's one of my great struggles in life. Because I'm intense, and it needs, that, that's a part of me that needs to constantly be redeemed by Jesus. There are good things and bad things about my intensity. It's not difficult to set me off. Okay, I can get angry. Here's something that makes me angry that happens at Mars Hill. I don't want it to happen at Desert Springs. If we happen to be out in public and you have a friend that you wish to introduce me to, don't ever introduce me as your minister. Not a minister, okay? I'm a pastor, I'm an elder, I'm an equipper. You're a minister. Next time you're out, I dare you, I dare you, next time you're out in public, especially if you're around people who don't know Jesus, introduce each other as ministers. And people will say, well, where's the white thing that you know that you wear at the top of the collar? What's... You're the ministers of Desert Springs Church. The burden of ministry is laid upon you. We have to get away from this concept in the American church that we hire people and pay them as mercenaries to do ministry. It's not what church is about. You're the ministers. Now, what is the ministry you've been called to? What does that look like? What does it look like building up the body of Christ? Verse 13. Here we come back and we reintroduce the concept of unity, and we bring it all together and tie it up in a nice bow. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Isn't that interesting? Unity is something we have positionally, theoretically in Jesus, but practically it's something we strive for, work towards, we attain by the grace of Jesus, and it looks like unity of the faith. What does that mean? Next phrase. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. It's about knowing Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus to mature manhood. That means what it means. We'll explain it in just a minute. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see the connection? A church that's unified is also collectively mature. And that maturity looks like knowing Jesus theoretically and experientially, that we might have a personal, dynamic, day in, day out, regular, dynamic experience loving and knowing Jesus. We're about growing people up. We're about growing together. Now, there's, there's two pictures of this that are going to follow that I want to share with you. I used to share with people, they're like flip sides of a record, and most of the people I speak to look at me and say, what is a record, Okay. 
Very few of you can remember back when there were these vinyl things that we used to buy. You remember that? When we'd go and we'd have a favorite song we'd hear on the radio, transistor radio, if you're old as me, and you would go to a store and you'd buy this piece of vinyl called a record and have a really great, great song on one side and a really crummy song on the other side that you just had to endure. Remember those days? Most of you don't, so let's move on to another analogy. How about a coin? Okay, that's almost antiquated on all our online banking. Think of two sides of a coin. So as we define what maturity looks like, we're going to get two pieces or two sides of the coin. One side is going to be what it doesn't look like. The flip side of the coin is going to be what it does look like. Let's talk about what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Two images here. One is one of immaturity, right? Children. Children who haven't quite figured out life yet. The other image is one of instability. So children being instable. So the image is this. The picture is this. Being a church where there are those who are called to equip, they equip effectively so that the saints, all of us together, do the work of ministry, we grow up in Jesus, doesn't look like this picture where people are immature and unstable. Here's the image as I was studying this week that I got. I've been a part of, as a pastor, I've been a part of so many youth gatherings so youth, you're going to relate to this, I hope. It's the dizzy bat game. You know what I'm talking about? Where you stick a bat. I don't know whoever came up with this idea. It's a horrible idea. You, you stick a bat in the ground, and you run around it. You run around, you spin around it, and then you've got to run back to your team, and you run erratically. Somewhere, someone, somewhere decided that that's a really good game for the pastor to play. Um, the other games that I have to play at, at Mars Hill Albuquerque is during the fall festival. I get to catch the pies in the face. Okay, I still smell whipped cream in my sinuses, you know, three months later from that experience this year. Here's my other gig that I like to play at the annual church picnic. I'm always the guy who blows out his hamstring playing football, okay? Those are the parts I play. Here's the image. If equippers aren't equipping the saints and saints aren't doing the work of ministry, the end result is you have a church full of people playing the dizzy bat game, running here, there, and everywhere, being deceived, being misled, being redirected through human cunning, false wisdom, and unbiblical doctrine. How many Christians do you know like that? Every week it's something new, and usually it comes with a t-shirt and a bumper sticker, right? And some kind of freaky diet. You know, maybe you don't hang out with the people I do. It's like, what is the doctrine of the week? What is, how many churches... And Desert Springs isn't one of them. But how many churches do you know like that? It's the next book. It's the next gimmick. And all you have is an immature church. And by definition, if you have an immature church, namely people spinning through the dizzy back game, going doctrine, doctrine, you have a disunified church. Unity and maturity go hand in hand. They're connected. They're the two parts of a, of a strong epoxy that unites people in Christ. So if that's not what maturity looks like, what does it look like? Verse 15. It looks like this. Rather, speaking the truth in love. That phrase literally reads truthing in love, not speaking the truth. Isn't that cool that we could take truth and make it a verb? Are you truthing today? Meaning that you're living out the truth of the gospel in love. 
Let's go back there. Rather, truthing in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, circle that phrase, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That, my friends, is maturity, which also produces unity. That's it. Did you see the image? It's a physical body. Where Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of Desert Springs Church. He's the senior pastor here, just like he is in Mars Hill, Albuquerque, in Mars Hill, everywhere. In every church that proclaims his name, he is the head. And we are members of his body. And what we do is we grow up into him. He's enormous. He's preeminent. He's prominent. We grow up into him. I can see the same is true here as... as Marcel Albuquerque, we've got a lot of little babies now. It's so cool, so exciting. If we're not being obedient to many commands, we're at least being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, okay? If nothing else, we're doing that one right. And uh, occasionally, uh, as, as you go in and you pray with new families as they celebrate their babies, you meet uh, some very interesting-looking babies. All babies are beautiful, don't get me wrong. Some are more beautiful than others. Recently, man, I hope this doesn't go on the Internet. Recently... We've had some babies with just some enormous heads. Now, nothing's wrong with them, but just enormous heads. Beautiful heads, but big heads. And I remember, and I want to pray out loud, but I pray this prayer silently because I think it's more glorifying to God and honoring to people. I say, oh, Lord, let that baby grow into his head. Wow. You know, Mama, you better feed that baby because he's, he's got a big head to grow into. Almost looks like the kind of freakish dolls you buy in the doll store. Anyways. That's the image here. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The head directs the body. The head is preeminent. We live to worship Jesus. We live at his direction. He moves the body. But what happens is maturity looks like when together everyone is doing his or her part in ministry. The the equippers are equipping the saints. The saints are doing the work of ministry. Everybody is invested. Everybody's involved in ministry so that the body builds itself up in love and namely grows into the head, which is Jesus Christ. That's maturity. And when you have maturity, guess what? You have unity. You have unity. You attain unity when maturity is achieved. Three things I want us to think about this morning. Always has to be three things in every good sermon. Here's my three, all right? You can decide whether it's good or not. Three things, three propositions I want you to think through based on the truth of this text. First one is this. Unity is attained when community, don't miss that word, when community maturity is achieved. That's when we have unity. When everyone, without exception, within the community of the local church is maturing in Jesus. Guess what happens? Unity happens so that the unity that Jesus purchased for us is no longer purely positional or theoretical. It is practical, and we experience the deep joy of living in unity day in and day out because we're growing up together into the head whom is Jesus. Now, here's the problem. And the problem is really a big problem. The problem is with American evangelical Christianity, in other words, our team, 
And the problem with American evangelical Christianity is that it's way more American than it is either evangelical or Christian. Let me see if I can explain this through a comparison. If you had lived, if you had lived in first century Rome and you were a professed follower of Jesus, you know what pagan Romans would call you? They would have labeled you an atheist. Here's why. In the Roman concept of religion, you had to have a temple. Early Christians didn't have a temple. You had to have a priesthood. Early Christians didn't have a priest. You had to have a weekly, regular sacrifice. Early Christians didn't have a sacrifice. And you had to have an emperor. Now, at the time of early Christianity, the emperor wasn't worshipped anymore, but he was certainly the head of all religion. But as we look at the early church, they didn't have those things. So the, the Romans couldn't think of any other word to call them, but you're atheists. You don't believe in any religion because you don't have these things that we hold dear. Now, fast forward a millennia, maybe even a few hundred years. Look what begins to happen in the Roman church. Temples begin to be built. A priesthood begins to be established that mediates between God and man. The concept of the Eucharist begins to develop, which looks like Jesus is being sacrificed week in and week out. And the Bishop of Rome now has the name Pope, like an emperor. And what we see happening is this movement that engaged culture but was radically countercultural suddenly becomes absorbed into culture and has lost some of its identity. Now, before we as American Christian evangelicals throw stones at Roman Catholics, we need to look at our own movement. Two things that are absolutely prevalent, if not dominant, in our culture have made their way into the church, and they absolutely threaten community maturity at its core. First thing is individualism, right? That's the fabric of our country politically and culturally. We're all about the individual, Individual rights trump community needs, right? Now, that may be a good thing politically, but spiritually, that's absolutely contrary to Scripture. Here's what individualism looks like. See if you fall into this category. An individual committed to individualism looks at church and says, here's what I want out of church. I want to show up on Sunday. I want some inspiring music. I want a very practical sermon, and then I'm going to go away for a week, and I'm going to live just me and Jesus, tight in fellowship, tight in relationship, and then I'm going to show up next Sunday. And if you do a really good job, I may pay you some money in appreciation. That's crazy. That's nowhere in the Bible. The Bible speaks against that. And if you are committed to individualism, you'll never understand nor participate in community maturity. The second thing in our society that threatens community maturity in the church that we take like a bunch of of dirty clothes and drag into the church is consumerism. In the concept of consumerism, which drives our economy, in other words, if we make a lot of stuff that nobody needs and we pay good money for stuff, we'll all have jobs, we'll all live affluently, we'll make that stuff cheaper and we'll just keep buying more of it, makes us all rich. When applied to the church, it looks like this. The church is a business. I'm a customer or a consumer. I'm your client. 
I will come and I will join and I will participate and I will pay you to meet my needs. And we have kind of this valet type of Christianity. I show up and if you do a really good job of taking care of me and meeting my needs, then I'll pay you. And instead of living in biblical covenant community, we live in a business contract community. We need to repent. I believe that statistically speaking, American evangelical Christians look no different in any measurable category than those who don't know Jesus is because we don't practice community maturity. And the reason we don't is because we have bought into individualism, consumerism, we've dragged in the church. And I love big churches, don't get me wrong. I am on a staff, I'm on a staff member of one of the biggest churches in the country. You go to a big church. But you can build a really big church week in and week out by proclaiming individualism and consumerism. And yet you're not equipping the saints for the work of ministry and there's no community maturity. Some of you this morning need to repent. Oh, I pray that you would come to that embarrassing realization of, it's all about me. This isn't good. Or I'm coming to Desert Springs like I'm checking out a Walmart or a Target or a a buffet. and, and, And if I don't like it, I won't come back. If we want to live in the unity that Jesus has purchased for us, we have to be committed to community maturity. So let's look at the next point. If indeed unity is attained... As community maturity is achieved, community maturity is achieved when all members are involved in ministry. Isn't that a great picture? Everyone's involved. Every one of us is a unique member of the body of Christ called to a specific role to play. And equippers equip and saints minister. And when it all comes together and everyone is playing their part, guess what happens? Maturity ensues. Isn't that cool? That's how simple it is. We look at metrics all the time at Mars Hill because we want to be effective. And right now, probably about 50% of everybody who goes to Mars Hill, 50% of people serve. And there's a part of us that said, that's doing better than most churches. But that's not acceptable, is it? How many of you would be pleased if you came in this morning and said, well, 50% of my body is functioning today. I don't know which 50% it comes and goes. Eh, 50%. We would call you unhealthy. Call you handicapped. Two things. Two things I want you to see here. Here's the beautiful picture from Ephesians 4. There is unity because we all have responsibility to love, to serve, to minister to each other's needs in the name of Jesus, by the strength of Jesus, for his glory. That's what unites us, but there is diversity. There are those who are called to speaking gifts, to equipping gifts, and there are those who are called to minister. So if that is true, then there's a couple places where we can get hung up. First place is this. If not all of us are involved meaningfully in each other's lives, ministering to each other, there's going to be a problem. I love what Bud Wilkinson said years ago, coach of Oklahoma football team before Barry Switzer came and muddied the waters. He was asked one time, 
about the contribution of American college football to the state of national health. I love what he said. His words were more or less, it doesn't contribute anything because on any Saturday afternoon what you have is 22 men desperately in need of rest, being cheered on by 50,000 people desperately in need of exercise. The ratios in the church of those who actively serve and minister to each other is actually significantly less than that ratio. Do something. Do something. I, I, it drives me crazy when people are holding out for a better offer. Folks, it's not coming, all right? Do. Go to the ministry fair today. Go to the different tables. Pray, Lord, as I walk in these doors, if I'm not involved in ministry, I'll take something, just whatever it's the first one or the one with the coolest logo or, you know, the friendliest greeter. I don't care. Do something. But do something. Doing something is always better than doing nothing. It may take you a couple of attempts to find your sweet spot. That's okay. Do something. Some of you are doing nothing but consuming from everyone else. And just like a part of the body that's, that's not functioning appropriately, yet stealing nourishment for the rest of the body, that body will ultimately die. Here's the second thing that can, can throw us off. If you are functioning, but you're functioning in the wrong broad category, namely if equippers are doing the work of ministry or saints are doing the work of equipping. You see what I'm saying? A couple passages to look up. We don't have time. Look these up tonight if you'd like. Acts 6, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 10. Scripture makes it very clear that all of us, although equal in the body of Christ, have different roles. There are those who are called, who are gifted, who are firm to primarily teach and equip so that the saints may have effectiveness in the work of ministry. There are those who are called to minister. So if your equippers are primarily doing the work of ministry, that's not going to be good. Sadly, the prevailing paradigm in the church, at least in our country, is let's hire guys to do ministry. The rest of us will show up and pay them so that they do the work of ministry. It's totally unbiblical. I planted a church, which has now become Mars Hill, Albuquerque, and I didn't understand this principle. And so as I planted this church, not only did I do the equipping, I did all the work of ministry. So I set up the chairs before worship. I, I watched babies in the nursery right until I had to go on. I go on, I come back into the nursery uh, it was at everybody's birthday party, and I love the people, don't get me wrong. And I had to pray at every birthday party, and anybody who was sad, anybody who needed counseling, I did it. It hit a low point when some very well-meaning people who I love deeply called me. There was a set of traveling teddy bears, kid you not, that were going across the country making an appearance in every state. This couple so happened to land that gig here in Albuquerque, they called me. It was, a, it was a boy teddy bear and a girl teddy bear. They called me to officially pronounce over a wedding of these bears. And I did it. It was a little point in ministry. I remember being there and saying, oh, Jesus, what am I doing? <laughs> it's not that these other things are unimportant. They're critically important. But equippers need to be equipping. Best thing. Best thing you can do if you really want to love Ryan and Ron and Zach and the team is to do the work of ministry and free them up to spend time in prayer and in study and in teaching and instructing you so the whole thing works. Now, let's look at the flip side of that. Some of you are so gifted as saints in doing the work of ministry 
And yet, because we live in a rock star culture where there's some celebrity given to those who stand up front and speak, you desire to be the person up front, much like every time a football team opens up spring camp, the fattest guy on the team wants to play quarterback. It's not a good mix. Play your part. You know who my heroes are at Mars Hill? I love them. I love them so much. They're the ones who greet. They're the ones who hand out bulletins. They're the ones who clean up the place after everybody leaves. They're the ones, and I love these people the most, they're the ones who minister to the children. <laughs> there's just not much reward in that. Other, You don't get a lot of thanks. I mean, there's great reward in that. They're the ones who do tech stuff. If you didn't have these people back here this morning, this whole thing would be a disaster. It's all the people who quietly but effectively and faithfully serve behind them. They're going to be so close to the throne of Jesus, and I'm going to be like in the mezzanine section that I'm going to wait for one of them to get up and go to the bathroom. I'm going to take their seat, but that's the only way I'm going to get that close. <laughs> Play your part. Last thing, and most important thing. Ministry is from Jesus. It's achieved through Jesus. And it's ultimately for Jesus. We like to say it this way at Mars Hill Church. It's all about Jesus. Now think about that for a minute. Because there are some profound implications that go along with that reality. Here's the implication. If you are not playing your part as a member in the body of Christ, loving and serving others, then we can say... Without any hesitation, you're not all about Jesus. You're about something else other than Jesus. And we want you to have the deepest joy that comes from living a life with Jesus at the center, that Jesus is preeminent in everything. And what ministry affords you is in a super context, another venue, another vehicle to develop a love and a worship for Jesus while you serve others. It's about Jesus. Don't complicate it beyond that. Don't make it.